I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear. I'm excited to introduce you today to my good friend, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Natasha is the author of A Sojourner's Truth, and I think you will enjoy this conversation. I loved talking to her about growing up in the South, about patriotism, about the good old days, and about how acknowledging privilege can be a part of the solution to our social divisions. One of the things I love about Natasha is that she is a woman who embodies that challenging and beautiful combination of speaking the truth in love. I'm so glad that we get to hear these powerful words of truth and love from her today. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, Natasha. It is so fun to see you. I get to see you in Zoom, even though everybody else is just going to listen to us. And I was trying to think about when I first met you, and I'm actually not even sure, but I know that in the past couple of years, I have come to count you as not just a colleague, but actually as a friend. And I'm really grateful for that. And we had a chance because we both published books in the same week in 2018, Yep. On similar topics, I'm just going to read your book title and my book title. I have them both in front of me. So yours yeah. is A Sojourner's Truth, Choosing Freedom and Courage in a Divided World, with a foreword by Patricia Raybon. Yes. Mine is White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege, with a foreword by Patricia Raybon. <laughs> and yes. they literally came out within a week of each other. So I felt like these books are kind of friends. From the beginning yeah. <laughs> and I've loved the chance that we've had to actually speak in two cases in front of churches together about our books and about our work and it's really fun to think that we can record at least some pieces of that type of conversation here today so welcome I'm delighted to see you and I'd love for you to start just by telling listeners who might not know you a little bit about who you are and especially about the work that you are doing. Sure. Yeah. So Natasha Sister Robinson, I am, I always start like I'm a black girl from Orangeburg, South Carolina. So Orangeburg is like a small rural town in South Carolina, about 45 minutes south of the state's capital of Columbia. Um, I'm the oldest of three children and I've known I was a leader at a very young age. And so that, that the leadership development, the athleticism, the academic prowess um, led me to um, the Naval Academy. So ended up going to the Naval Academy, um, graduated, got commissioned in the Marine Corps. So as an officer in the Marine Corps, did six years in the Corps in that time, met my husband, married him. Um, we have one daughter, she's 13. And after going, she's 13 now. So after mm-hmm. going to the Corps, I ended up working three years at the Department of Homeland Security and then decided somewhere in there, um, God was waking me up to write. So I started writing for publication around 2010. And that writing has led to now the publications of two books, one Bible study, one on the way, also has led to me attending seminary. So I got my Master of Arts in Christian Leadership in Gordon-Conwell a few years ago. And now I'm in a doctorate program, um, a cohort between North Park Theological Seminary and Fuller. What I'm doing right now is this podcast about my book, White Picket Fences. And we're in chapter three, which is when I write about growing up in my own small town, Southern experience of Edenton, North Carolina. And I, as you know, grew up in what was a town that demographically was 50% African American and 50% Caucasian Americans. And we 
all the same lived in almost a functionally segregated way. So that was my childhood experience. There are parallels to your childhood experience and differences. And I would love for you just to start by talking about your childhood. Yeah. So I grew up around a lot of women mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, not because the men weren't around. My family just had more women. So I learned, I think, you know, from those women, just, you know, how to keep family, how to build community, how to love. We laughed all the time. And so there were always like big gatherings growing up. Um, We also grew up in a town that, I mean, was pretty segregated. I mean, there were white people there. Um, I saw a few of them, not a lot. A few of them, you know, were teaching in the school, but I think a lot of them that had the financial ability sent their children to private school. There was only one public high school in my town. And so all of the, uh, there were three middle schools and all of them ended up going to this one high school. That's where I went to school. And then the other thing that's very interesting is that there were two historically black colleges and universities. So one private and one public. So my mother actually worked at at some point in my youth um, at both of them. And so I was always around education. Education was very important you know, you have that. And then there's obviously a lot of history there. So in addition to the historically black colleges and universities, what I write about early in my book, um, there was a massacre, the Orangeburg massacre that occurred there where um, students from um, actually my high school and uh, South Carolina State University, that's what it is now, college at the time, uh, they were trying to, you know, do peaceful protests so they could go bowling. It was the only bowling alley in town within, within a, like a 20 mile radius. And um, it was segregated. And, and when was this? Like what, what time like period? Like in the 60s. Yeah. Know, like, yeah. Like civil rights movement time. Yep. And so, you know, that protest, which started out peaceful, turned into a big, you know, to do. It turned, you know, pretty violent. And then yeah. you had three boys, I call them boys because they were teenagers, 17, 18 year olds um, that were murdered Mm. by police. And then there was one woman, and I didn't find out about this two years later, that uh, was a college student. She was married, a college student that was pregnant and got beaten by the cops and then lost her baby uh, within Mm. a week of that experience. And so, you know, for for those who who are pro-life, who believe, you know, in, in birth and that's important. Like, so yeah. I, I consider this four, there are four deaths, you know, that's right. of that massacre. I knew about that growing up. One of the things that I love about your book is the way you start with the strength and the beauty of this community, of these women, of these people of faith. And even though there were these really hard aspects of the history that you just shared, as well as other aspects of just pain and injustice, you still start with that sense of love and safety and celebration. And I was wondering if you would actually read, there's one paragraph um, in your book, if you have it, I've got it. it. You do. Okay. So page 36, Mm -hmm. that first paragraph there, I, I don't know, I've got it started underlined in my book. So I'd love for you to read it and just explain why you started in terms of telling your story why start here? Because I think sometimes the national story we get about small, you know, being a black woman from a small Southern town, it does not start with this. And so I would love for you to read it. And then also to say, why did you start here? Yeah. So the excerpt, um, in this community, we were taught that being black and being a woman was something worth loving. And I loved everything about being a black girl. It was not until I left home that I realized that loving and affirming blackness was not the norm in America. Things were quite different in the real world. I'm so glad that my identity was formed and shaped in this community because when messages from the world aimed to attack my womanhood, my blackness, my skin tone, my hair, 
I simply rejected those lies. The people from my own community loved and cared for me, and they told me the truth about myself. Mm, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I and to me, I just think it was, it, it just was, right? It was just a natural part of my upbringing. I was just stating what I knew to be true about the people that I know and loved and the people who um, affirmed me so that people can have a different story and a different narrative. Yeah, I think you do it so well. There's another piece that you bring in in terms of just pain and hardship, which, of course, I think is probably anyone who's writing a memoir has aspects of their life that they can look back on and celebrate and others that are painful and hard. Your uh, stories that you share, at least in A Sojourner's Truth, about pain and hardship are also directly linked to a broader story of racism and injustice in our nation. Education, all of these things have formed and shaped you. And then of course, there are other things as well. So mm -hmm. so what are those and how have they made you who you are? Yeah, I think two come to mind, especially out of Sojourner's Truth. So one of them was, I remember, um, obviously right now we're seeing all these artifacts coming down, right? Concerning yeah. people that, that the country has deemed heroic, that black people have never felt in this country were, were worthy of that praise and high honor. Um, and, monuments and artifacts and things. And so um, one of those artifacts for my state was the Confederate flag. And then, you know, for years I watched where the state lost so much money. Like people were not coming to the state for tourism. There were, some people weren't, were, were not doing concerts in the state. So they were losing a lot of money. And I'm like, and I, and I, on one hand, you think that that's kind of the thing that's motivating people, but you realize they're giving up money because they're holding fast to something else that's more important. Yeah. And so to me, that just kind of signal as a young person, like this is something deeper than, you know, like there's something here. I continue to see this racism or um, the effects of what Michael Emerson and, and Christian Smith write about in Divided by Faith about living in a racialized society. So it's yeah. not like an isolated incident. These things kind of, you know, fester in, in and, and perpetuate over time. And so the, the Confederate flag was one of those. And then I think the other one that came comes to mind, especially when I think about the book, is you know, getting to the Naval Academy and experiencing, you know, this, 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 I'll use your word, a privilege, right? Of yeah. being exposed to that for the first time, of seeing that there are literally people in the world, and I didn't know this. I really didn't, um, Amy mm -hmm. Julia. There were people in the world that felt like they had space to occupy and anyone else that came into that space was not worthy of the space. They mm. needed to be rejected out of the space and they were somehow taking up opportunities and space for other people. And so I went to Naval Academy in 1998 and, you know, was told stuff like, you know, somebody, a white male would say his friend didn't get in because people like me got in because of affirmative action or because of a quota. And that's why yeah. his friend, not that his friend wasn't good enough, but that it's because we took up a slide, right? Or that- Right, because there's no way you could have worked no harder. Way. There's no way. Been, there's gotten no better way. grades it's or no, whatever no had the criteria. Right. Yeah. It's just no way. So I was exposed to that for the first time. And I didn't, and I write about this in book, like, I didn't know like I knew, but I didn't know what was going mm -hmm. on. And then I realized it's like, oh, this is, this is a plan. Like, like there's a plan to run me out of here. And if I don't understand, mm -hmm. if I don't learn the rules of this game really quick, then I'm not going to make it. 
And so I really had to under learn like what was going on, what was legally allowed, like what they couldn't do. And so I could play to those strengths and make them work in my favor. And yet, even as we've, you know, recently celebrated the 4th of July as a nation and had, I think, a very good national conversation about what exactly are we celebrating when freedom was restricted from its beginning to a very few what does it mean to celebrate this nation? What does it mean to celebrate independence and liberty and justice as we look back and in our current context? So that's yeah. so there's this very specific, like why stay at the Naval Academy under that mm-hmm. uh, oppressive situation that you found yourself in? And then also, how do you understand patriotism? How do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, so the first one, why stay? To me, like the, there wasn't an option of quitting. Right. Right. And I I think part of it is one, like, I'm not afraid to do hard things and I'm not afraid to work hard. And that's the thing. Like, like, that's the thing that got me there. (laughs) Right. I was, I was already, you know, I was already um, a competitive athlete. I was already, Mm -hmm. you know, um, someone who had uh, done well academically. Like I I already had the goods. So I think that, you know, the Naval Academy's mission, they'll say like it's moral, mental and physical development. So I already had those goods that I had that Mm -hmm. foundation coming in. I had the moral, mental and physical development. But I think the other part of it is just kind of practical. Right. So I had been accepted to a lot of schools and I had at the time. So 19, this 1997, when I graduated high school, I had more than probably about five hundred thousand dollars in scholarship money. So I could have mm-hmm. gone to several schools. But here's the thing. Yeah. As you know, like once you turn down a scholarship, it's not there waiting for you. Right. So like all those options now are out the window. So it's like gotcha. to, to quit was not an option to quit for mm-hmm. what? Like that wouldn't have been beneficial to me. And certainly I wasn't going to quit because of them. Like I came yeah. with the purpose of graduating. That's exactly what I right. tended to do. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I, and I intended to do that. You know, my family, um, and you know this, but just, you know, for your audience, like my family, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. You know, we kind of wavered between like lower middle class to poor, depending on the year. Um, cause my yeah. doc, my dad was a roofing contractor. And so like as the oldest, one of my primary motivators was I wanted to get myself off of my parents' books. Like I didn't want them worrying about me. Um, I didn't want to be dependent on them for, for, for money. Cause they just didn't have yeah. it to spare. And yeah. I think from the patriarch, um, the patriotism piece, I think, you know, I, I did a uh, talk last year at the Prentice Gathering, and I quoted uh, James Baldwin, SAS James Baldwin in it. And mm-hmm. one of the things that James Baldwin said is that because I love America, something along the lines of that I insist on criticizing her perpetually. And so, yeah. and so I changed the words I said, I said, you know, I, I'll say critique, right? <laughs> because I think for anything that you do in life, individually or collectively, and, and that's a thing, like one thing, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people watch Hamilton this weekend, like the America was a dream and an experiment. Yeah. Right. That's what it was. It was a dream and experiment. Right. Yep. Of people saying, um, we don't like what we have over there, but we think we can do it better. Yep. And so the issue is then is can we be better? Right. And um and my answer to that is always yes. Mm. And so what I think is unpatriotic is to keep going down a path that's not healthy, that's not mm-hmm. about what's good for all Americans. 
right? Those yeah. are the things that I think are unpatriotic, that are divisive, right? But if we're saying, you know, there's some things that's broken here, let's let's get those things right. To me, that's an act of patriotism. And from a Christian perspective, it's an act of love. Mm, yeah, I love that. So this chapter in White Picket Fences that I've been thinking about today is called The Good Old Days. And that idea of the good old days is like, oh, there once was an idyllic time in American history. And if only we could return to the days when life was simple and easy and pure, everything would be better. And I remember the first time I ever started to question that phrase, I was at a writer's conference and I must have said the good old days or someone else did. And there was a woman of color who was at the conference. So no one I knew very well, but she was like, yeah, that's not a positive idea for me. Like if I look back on what the good old days represent, they were, it's not good for me or for my family. And so I just wanted to ask you if you have had the same experience and like what comes to mind for you if you hear people say or kind of wax nostalgic for the good old days. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I, I think there are things that when I think about values, there are some things that I think we've lost you know, mm -hmm. in our society, right? But I think what you're talking about is a little different because um where people haven't said a whole bunch of the good old days but i'll just go ahead and call it out like you know this whole make america greater than i got a problem right. with that right i got a problem with that because again you know for people of color especially when i think about indigenous people when i think about um some asian communities when i think about you know black people you know there there's no point you know in our history where in our history in this country where um america has been great to us Right. Yeah. Right. There, there, now, there's been some opportunities that obviously things are better than they've been for as far as certain things. But I think, you know, when we look at the history, we really understand the history. And that's the thing, Amy Julia, people don't know the history. Right. They yeah. only know what they've been told. And one thing I always have to try to remind people about history is history is not about what happened. Um, history is about who had the power to tell the story. Hmm. Yeah, I was just last night going over Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass says, Americans are remarkably familiar with all facts which make in their own favor. Hmm. This is esteemed by some as a national trait, perhaps a national weakness. It is a fact that whatever makes for the wealth or for the reputation of Americans, it can be had cheap will be found by Americans. And this whole thing about what we determine is factual. And, and we as America, it's very American to tell a narrative that paints America in the best light. Right. And I think we need to understand that. We need to name that. And then we need to start questioning, well, what is it that I believe about our country that may or may not be true? And what is it that I believe about my country that is a positive that may have affected other populations and people groups in this country in different ways? And that's not even getting into our international policy. I know, there's so much there. And I certainly can look back on how I was taught, especially the history of the state of North Carolina, but you know, American history more broadly, even, I mean, I was even reflecting on the term African-American today and like but i'm a european american like is that the right way to say it because i'm no more or less american than you are and right. why do i have to put a qualifying word 
you know, because, and why is it? Because white Americans have been considered the norm and yeah. the center. Yep. And so, you know, just, and I'm still struggling to figure out even the language around that, much less how it's affected my entire understanding of the world to be positioned at the center. In this issue regarding race, it seems to be the one that we are not intentional about addressing in very tangible, and I mean systemic ways too, because at best what we've seen is that people like to put bandage on it, a pacified issue, but we don't understand history to go to the root cause of the issue. We don't understand how that's still today impacting every system or every structure, like every power structure in this country is still very much impacted by it. And what do we need to do to make those systems more equitable? I read a piece actually on Ed Stetzer's blog for Christianity Today. He didn't write it. A um, woman professor, a white woman who's a professor wrote about systems and, and sin. And she said, you know, sure, sin is individual. And what do individuals do? They build systems, they build institutions. And so even if you no longer have the same sin in your personal heart that your forebears did in whatever system or institution you're a part of, if they did have that, then your institution still has it, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's still this, not just leftover, but Mm -hmm. it was built in such a way that you're still participating in a system and a structure. And so the only way to take that down is to actually see that systemic root of sin, Mm -hmm. which is to say division and hatefulness and privilege and power and, you know, considering some groups of people better than others and Mm -hmm. more worthy and all these things. It's Mm -hmm. like, how do you rip that down? You got to go back to the root uh, in lots of different ways. So one of the things I've been thinking about in having this conversation is the parallels that I see between our stories in lots of ways, including just who we are right now as female Christian leaders, writers, thinkers, although you have many more years of education than I do. (laughs) But nevertheless, I also look back to that growing up in a small town in the South with support from strong Christian communities, because I also grew up with a lot of women around. I was the oldest of four girls. And I remember just being outside. My mom did not work outside the home when I was little, and neither did the other women in our social circles. So I had a lot of women and a lot of Christian women in my life who did support and affirm me in many, many ways. And there was a lot of stability. There was a lot of celebration. I really look back as an adult and as a teenager on that time of growing up in North Carolina as idyllic. And then I started to learn about the ways that that same experience was built on injustice and how, yeah, I went to an all white church in a town that was only 50% white people. Why was that? Mm -hmm. And I started to learn that history, right? I went to an all white school because, I mean, and you kind of spoke to this in the wake of desegregation orders in the late 60s and early 70s, especially across the South, just a slew of private academies that were relatively low cost. And I really wrestle a lot about naming or believing that there was anything good about my childhood, Mm -hmm. while also knowing that there was this injustice that was like embedded inside of it. 
you know, you have to have conversations about what did people get in their formative years that either help or hinder them to be the best citizens. And this is just a, you know, the conversation about system structures in, in America, right? I'm not even talking about the Christian stuff yet, but just like, what did they get in their formative year to help them be the best citizens that, you know, are contributors to society, not takers and all that. You need to have those conversations. But I think specifically concerning your question about some people that might have had different experiences or privileges, like it doesn't, it doesn't help me or, you know, people of color or the black community for you to feel guilty about what you got. You got what you got. Mm. Right. And you're not and and to some degree, you know, when you got it, like you didn't have the power to not have it. Right. You know what right. I'm saying? So you mm-hmm. got and, and this is like the Christian part of this, right? Of like, you know, Paul writes or, or in in um, Acts chapter 17 that God designs where people stay and where they're, you know, kind of where they're planted. And he does this so that people everywhere can get to know God and be drawn to him. And so in the same way that, you know, God planted me in a certain womb, in a certain family, in a certain place and location, that was a part of the person that God was forming me to be for the things that he purposed for me to do in in life, right? And so the same thing for you and somebody else. It's the stuff that God has put in you, good and bad, right? To shape and form you for how he wants you to show up in the world and the purpose that he's had for your life. The challenge is, though, Amy Julia, is that some people, and I see this in the church a lot, would take those privileges and advantages and then assume that they've got it because of their hard work or because they have the Holy Spirit and they follow in the Lord, like they're doing all the right things. No thought that other people are out here doing all those things and don't have half of what you have to show for it. And so what we're asking, and I think especially as Christians, it's not for you to feel bad or guilty or shamed about what you have because that doesn't help anybody. It don't mm-hmm. even, and it doesn't even fix the problem, right? Right. But the thing is to take what you've given and to use those privileges to become part of solution, right? To right. create access and opportunity for other people, knowing that when you do that, you haven't lost anything. And the, the way, I mean, I think about you talking about the people who are like, oh, you're only here because of affirmative action. Right. And I think about the ways in which my life as a white person was built on what we could call affirmative action. Absolutely. Like that I was already given a leg up and I did work hard yeah. as did you. Right. Like, and yeah. the, so this sense of the only way in which you could be, you know, kind of, I mean, I think affirmative action is actually great, but right. like unfairly lifted up is because yeah. you're a black woman, as opposed to like, well, what about because you're a legacy at this school because right. your grandfather went here? Right. Like, why why are we seeing that as a, only about hard work and virtue right. and seeing this as about a quota system when really everybody's working hard? And right. when you work hard starting ahead, right. you get farther. Like, right. so Yeah. And, and obviously, I mean, obviously, sociologists write a lot about this, about we have different thought processes about people who are in our in-group versus our out-group, right? So people can be doing the exact same things, and then we can uh, put a different judgment on it, whether or not they're in our in-group or our out-group. And, you know, so that's why we're seeing a lot of these um, things, too. And, you know, when we see these images, for example, like policing and, and these things, they say, okay, well, what would that story narrative look like if the situation was reversed, right? And so right. we're starting to we're starting to question those things. But I think you know what what people 
you know, again, I think part of it is ignorance, not to to speak down to anyone, but just a lack of knowledge, right? A lack of understanding um, that we need to gain. But I think the other part of it is, is that, okay, once you understand that you do have some privilege and we all do, like there are certain privileges that I have, right? And this Mm -hmm. is part of my nonprofit work. Now, what do I do with the privileges that I have? Right. The fact that I have Internet, the fact that I can read, the fact that I have, you know, I own certain things. Right. The fact that I can write like these are all they're, they're all kind of privileges that we all have. How do we use those privileges that we have to create equitable spaces as we're learning and growing and seeing that we want to we don't want to keep perpetuating injustice in our society? So how can we create equitable spaces and act as people of justice in light of the history that we know or we're learning, but also as a result of who it is that God has made me to be and the stuff he's put into me and, and the way he's like my social location, my social economic location. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So I want to talk a little bit based on what you just said about the role of faith in your life, but also I'm thinking about specifically about a sojourner's truth. And I've told you this, but I'm going to tell our listeners this as well, that a couple of weeks ago, my husband said, you know, I'm going to start reading Exodus in my men's Bible study. Do you know about of any books that I could read alongside it? And I said, well, actually, the book that I would recommend is called A Sojourner's Truth. It's by my friend Natasha. And because in this book, you weave your own personal story and a lot of honestly, just like good teaching about leadership and race and justice and all of these things with and through the Exodus story. Mm -hmm. So the story of Moses in the early chapters of Exodus. So I'm just curious, I'd love for you to just tell us more about the significance of Exodus. Like, why did you choose that story as a way to tell your own story? Mm-hmm. I know it has resonance not only personally, but in terms of the African-American church more broadly. So what do you want us to take as readers from that story? But also, what do you personally take from that story? Yeah, so one, just generally, like Exodus you know, it's been part of, it's one of those stories in the Bible where Black people, Black Christians just kind of anchor themselves. They put their hope mm-hmm. in. Um, it, it gives them hope and reminds them of who God is and what God is able to do. And so, you know, when we think about generations of our ancestors being born into and dying in slavery and still working faithfully every day and with hope that if any day God can deliver. And um, they had that hope for those of them that were able to steal away and learn how to read and to share more of the Bible than that, not just what was in the slave Bible, right? That they were right. able to see that the same God who after hundreds of years or nearly 400 years that delivered the Israelites out of their enslavement to Egypt was um, still alive and, and well and present and able to deliver them. And so at any day, God can deliver, right? And so that is just an understanding of um, the Black church, the Black experience with this particular text and why it's always kind of been a part, such an important part of our faith journey. But I think the other part of it is um, to expand that a little bit more is it reads, in my book, it, it reads the story from the position of the oppressed, right? Yeah. And so I think, um, and my daughter and I were talking about this last night, looking at uh, Frederick Douglass' speech, because what happened, and you will see this, if you go back and look at some of our founding documents and language and speeches and letters from our founding fathers, they were using a lot of Christian language. And mm-hmm. so they were coming here 
seeing themselves as the Israelites that were right. being freed from the oppressor of, of Britain. Right. When in actuality, they became Egypt, right? They became the empire yeah. that then oppressed other people, first starting with the indigenous people um, and, and, and oppressing and enslaved then the uh, free African people. And so yeah. they became the very thing that they despised. Right? Right. And here's the thing, like we all has a temptation to do that, which is why it's so mm. important for us to be anchored in the Lord and looking at the Lord's character. And I was talking to my daughter about this last night. You just can't say it's in the Bible. Just because it's in the Bible, that don't mean you do it, right? Like you right. said, like, what is, what is God's character? How is God revealing his character and principles in here for how God wants us to live? And so we talked a lot about that. And so I think that's very, very important too, just kind of how we read the text and what posture we read the text in and and who what characters in the text we identify with i think it's very very important and so for this one it just gave me a chance to share not just my story alongside moses story which is a leadership story it is right, right? but it expands it to say when god raises up leaders because a lot of times when I hear, uh, particularly within white churches or white evangelicalism, when they're talking about Moses a lot, they don't talk about how great of a leader Moses was. And it kind of stops there, right? And God and his relationship with Moses and everything. But we don't realize that God is only raising up individuals so he can bless a people. Mm. That's still the truth today. Like, you know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. That's Jesus was the epitome of that, right? Like, mm-hmm. like God will raise up a leader to bless a people not to elevate the leader. And so what I was really intentional looking at, is like, okay, yes, God selected Moses and Moses by all intents and purposes was a very ordinary person, right? But the unique circumstances of his life, which is why I don't want anybody shying away from the unique circumstances of their life to your previous question, right? Like it's the very things that happened in his life, the stuff that God put in him that he was able to use and God was able to draw upon when it was time for him to be called out as a leader, as a voice, as an influencer, um, because the stuff was already there, the good and the bad stuff, right? There's some mm-hmm. good stuff, but there's some bad stuff. And all that stuff is there that really caused Moses to rise up. But it was for the purpose of blessing the people. God heard the cries of the Israelites and he sent Moses. Moses was his response to their cry, right? And so um, we see that. And so I was able to tell not just my personal story and the biblical story, but the African-American story that a lot of people don't know. Even a lot of educated people don't know, you know, by a large degree. And then I think from the faith perspective, it really allowed me to give the bigger picture yet, which is God's redemptive story. Like how can God use all of this stuff, the good and the bad of it right. for his ultimate good and his ultimate glory, which is, you know, where we are, uh, uh, end up at the end of the book is talking about redemption. Right. right. And so I think that's very important. You know, I wrote about this on uh, social media a few days ago, but you know, when I'm writing, I'm not thinking about a reader per se. I'm, I'm really mm. thinking about what is God requiring of me in the moment? Right? Mm. And that's what I write. And so literally there's like that audience, the one, but now I'm also realizing, you know, that I'm writing the stuff that my daughter needs to survive, mm. right? In, in this world. And I think that's critically important. And so it wasn't about who is, is or I think different people will read it and get different things out of it. So I'm, 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 I'm just as pleased as punch <laughs> that your husband is reading it. And it just made me yeah. think too that my, because um, I think this is important and I write about this a lot. I, I, I did write about this on your blog one time, but I think it's important for white people to 
seek out leadership and mentorship and from people of color. Um, that's very, yeah. very important. And go places and serve places and support institutions and organizations and things where they're not in the center and they're not in charge. Right. I think right. that's critically important. And when I was at Gordon Conwell, my spiritual director, who was a white man, he said to me, he said, Natasha, I really think a large part of your gift is really leading and stewarding white men. He said, no way. He did. He did. He said, I mean, he said, because he said, you can do all this other stuff. He said, but I really think you have some stuff that they mm-hmm. need to hear and they need to say. And so when you told me that, um, that was the yeah. first, his words was the first thing that came back to mind. Yeah. I have one more question for you because when you and I were together in Raleigh, North Carolina, this was back in January, we spoke side by side. We were literally physically together, hugging, hugging, sharing French fries without masks, with no masks. Oh, please, Lord, bring us back. But in this space, we spoke together and there was a person who asked us a question about Sunday mornings and referenced uh, what Martin Luther King once called the most segregated hour in American social life. And I really appreciated your answer to the question then. So I'm going to try to rephrase it now, but which really is like, is it a problem that our churches are divided upon racial lines? And what, if anything, should white Christians be doing to repair historic divides with fellow believers who are black Christians? Yeah, I think it ultimately depends on how you see the church, right? And so I think I'm not as concerned about the church being segregated on Sunday morning. I'm concerned about the church being segregated, period, like divided, period, right? Right. And so I think there are ways that we have to talk about that. In other words, like when um, Pew Research Journal, I quote this in my book, like this is like 70 something percent of white people do not have relationships with people of color that they trust, like intimate relationships. And so my thing is, it's like, it's not a surprise. Okay. So one hand, historically, we know that there is a black church because black people got kicked out of the white church. So let's, let's, you know, let's go ahead and do some homework on that. So I'm not going to put too much in, energy into that right now today, because I think that's a historical fact that people need to just kind of go and dig into. But I think the other part of it is, is that our churches are segregated because our lives are segregated. Right. Right. And so until we, with integrity, look at the ways that, and granted, there are some places geographically, right, where I'm not talking about you, you choose to live in a certain neighborhood. I'm just saying, you know, there are large parts of, you know, farming land or whatever, where there's not yeah. a lot. Right. So, so I get that. But by and large, um, our segregation in this country is by choice. And it's yeah. by choice, not just by race, but also by economic class. And so um, I think that's problematic because what it does is that it creates these bubbles and we don't understand not just how the other person lives, like our neighbor lives, but also how our own actions impacts in a negative way the actions of our neighbors that might not have the same life or experiences as us. And so I think, I do think that being intentional in where we go and how we show up and how we cultivate relationships is extremely important, not just on Sunday, but just in life. Because if you do it in your life, then the Sunday thing will you know, it'll, it'll start to reflect that as well. Right. Right. And so, um, I think that's part of it. So, but I also think is that, you know, we just have to be more intentional in how we relate to people and, and what we see and what we choose to see and what we choose to not see and how we respond. So for example, for people at work, right, this is where you spend the majority of your time people that work, right? They spend more time at work than they do with their families. They spend more time at work than they do at church, right? Right. And so you have to ask, okay, 
um, how many people of color are working here? Like, right. when is the last time old girl, old boy got promoted? Right. How right. many people are in the boardroom? Like how many people right. uh, like are in the room? Uh, Hamilton's in my head in the room where it happens. In the room where it happens. Right. Because because, again, if those. So those are the things right. that impact other things. And and so the church, I think there are ways. So, for example, with the black church in particular, um, not only was the black church a uh, product of being um, kicked out of the white church, but it has also become a place of a, a sanctuary, a place of safety, um, a, right, a, refuge. For, a refuge for black people. It's become a place where, um, you know, especially early on, you have black men that have their identity affirmed where they're not called boy, right? They're called mister and they're given a title of deacon and pastor and bishop, right? right. Um, and so and these are these are important things, right? To affirm right. their humanity and their dignity and their strength and all the other ways that they're investing in their families and communities. Again, that mm-hmm. we know, but because there's a other narrative about them that's saying other things, that this is a place that they came. And so I'm not so much interested in dismantling the black church or right. even even, you know, saying everybody need to be a multi-ethnic church. Because again, I've been in multi-ethnic church. I've worked with multi-ethnic church movements and churches. And by and large, the majority of multi-ethnic churches are still led by white men. And right. they're all often are still very much white cultured. So in other words, right. you can have, you know, a diverse uh, worship team or a diverse teaching team, but the style of teaching is still very much white culture. Right. The the songs that they choose are pretty, pretty much white culture. You know, I can hear a song be sung five different ways, but in a multi-ethnic church, it's going to be sung the white people's way, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I think there are things like that. You know, it's a difference between being multi-ethnic and multicultural. And I think you have a lot of multi-ethnic churches that are not multicultural. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is that they're not celebrating the depth and breadth of everyone that's in the space. And until yeah. that happens, I think it's not really affirming and it's not really healthy for the people of color who are there really just assimilating. And they're able to do it. And right. I was able to do it because that's what we do in every other professional space we go into. Right. Yeah. Right. And that I think for white Christians who want to be a part of repair, that question of assimilation and of, um, I mean, I've written and talked about this before, but for me, I think I started off with this sense of, I want to break down the walls so that anyone who is in my life, who's on the margin. So, you know, whether it's a person with a disability, person of color, you know, person who's been excluded for any reason can come and be like me, which is just classic assimilation. Right. And it took me a while to be like, wait a second. Right. No, what does it mean to break it all down so that we are in relationships of mutual self-giving where we all have needs, we all have gifts, and we are using them with one another? I mean, that's a, it's a huge reimagining, but I do think if we can shift the paradigm, so instead of a white church thinking, how can we now invite the black church to come back and be part of us? You know, it's like, no, no, we got to create God has to create something new, honestly. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to probably start not to say again, that there are no multi-ethnic churches that aren't, that, I think there are no, probably there are plenty some. Yeah, and I, and I know them. Work and, yeah. But at the same time, there is work to be done, as you said, on the relational level and there's work to be done on that just um, framework of and mindset yeah. about even 
what it means to be the church. Well, I think it's two things I want to respond to that because I think it's very important that you brought this up. I think one of them is comfort and the other is power, right? So this idea of comfort is why can't everybody come and be like me? Because I don't have to make adjustments with that. Right. Right. Yeah. And so the the one thing that Jesus calls us to as disciples is that we have to count the cost of our discipleship. And in counting the cost of our discipleship, when I look and see Old Testament prophets and followers of Jesus and New Testament believers, disciples and followers of Jesus, it costs all of them something, right? And so I, I would submit that if you're a Christian, you're a white Christian, and you're never challenged to be uncomfortable, and you're never challenged to count the cost of your discipleship, and you're never laying down your life and sacrificing things for the sake of the gospel and your faith, that I submit that you're not probably following Jesus. That's a, because discipleship means to follow Jesus. And so it's not about how can I get more people around me and I can keep doing the things I always do. It's like, what are the ways, because we're always, people of color are always adjusting. Right. We're always adjusting. Right. And so we're always sacrificing. We're always, um, you know, being in a position where it's not comfortable. And so I'm saying is, what does it mean for, you know, white people then to not be um, centered in the space and to right. say, OK, well, I'm going to go in work I'm, where I'm not in the majority. I'm going to go serve where I'm not in a majority. I'm going to go worship where I'm not in a majority. I'm going to go volunteer where I'm not in the majority. I'm going to put my child in things, my children in things where they're not in the majority. And I'm going to go there not to try to be changing everybody in the space to be like me. I'm going to go there and submit to the leadership of a person of color, people of color. I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to ask questions. And those relationships start to happen naturally because I've come in a position of humility, which is also a Christian characteristic, right? Of not right. trying to be in control and change everything. So I think the comfort thing is one, it's an idol that we don't name that's comfortable that, that I think we have to lay down. Um, so I think that's yeah. one. But the power dynamic is very important because again, I think people, uh, white people do need to think about, okay, when I think about my finances, when I think about my time, when I think about the places and things I support, how am I using that power that I have? My voice, right? Mm -hmm. My position at my position at work when I'm hiring people. I can say um, we need we need to have people of color in the top three when we're interviewing for a, a critical spot. And yeah. it's not Lauren and Sanders that's saying, okay, well, if you can't find a person, not because they're not out there, it means you gotta work harder. Right. Yeah. And so I think there are ways we have to use our power and position because that's that's a power that you have to say, OK, well, what is the percentage, not just a student population at my school? What's the percentage of people of color on the faculty? Well, and that's where it actually also strikes me that it's a false humility yeah. to not acknowledge power. Yes, I agree. Because I think that can happen, too, where in the name of humility, I won't acknowledge the power that I have. Right. And yet it can be, I think, that sense of recognizing that even if I don't deserve it, I've got a position of privilege or of power, mm -hmm. or even if I haven't earned it, I guess maybe is the better way of saying that. And how can I use that? And this goes back to what you were saying before about God always choosing leaders to bless a people. Yes. Right. And, yes. and not just and not just to bless your own people. I mean, I think back to Abraham, bless me that I might be a blessing, that sense of God's blessing being for all the nations right. through Abraham. Right. Uh, not even just for his children or for just for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations. Yeah. And I think similarly, when people in positions of power, which in our country is largely going to be white people and often even white men, right. 
say, what does it mean for this power to be used for the good of not just my community, but actually a wider and more diverse array of people? Yeah, I and I think, I think it's critically important because, you know, again, you can use that. So say you can't acknowledge the power and use the power in a way that's healthy, but you can also use that power in a way that's unhealthy. And so what you, what's unhealthy is saying, I'm going to use my money, my talents, my network, whatever, and I'm going to hoard it over a people. And then you're going to try to play a role of white savior, right? That's, right, that's, right. that's wrong. That's right. not what somebody's asking you to do, right? Like you can keep your money, right? But if you're saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to, you know, volunteer my time. I'm going to, you know, um, exercise or, uh, you know, um, leverage my network. I'm going to, you know, give funds. And again, there's all kinds of ways you do this to support schools locally, to right. support churches, to support nonprofits, like, yeah, to, to, to support a black owned business. Like there are all kinds of ways you can do this. I'm going to do this, but it's not, I'm not going to do it to hoard it over you. I'm going to do it because I am a disciple of Jesus, because I've understood my privilege, because I've been a beneficiary of this injustice. And as a result of that, I'm going to come and not say I have to be in charge and now you have to cater to me because I've done this. I'm going to right. come as a fellow servant on the journey, right? right. I'm going to come as a partner. And in that, there'll be some mutual learning and benefit. And then, you know, if you stay long enough, which I think is critically important too, there can be some trust established where then it can become, you know, a mutually beneficial relationship. Because right. I submit, Amy Julian, this is why I think people don't see and understand. I think white people need this for their spiritual formation. Mm, I yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think white people need this for their spiritual formation. And so it's not even like like what Natasha is saying is that what you have to do. But I'm saying is that the very fact that you haven't had to think about the cost of discipleship in this country. Right. The fact and what it means to submit to one another in love, right? And, I mean, and to what really it means have to, to live that out. What it means to submit to one another in love, what it means to lay down your life for yeah. someone else, right? Right, right. So the stuff you do, here's the thing the stuff you do for your own children, would you do that for somebody else's child? Right. Right. You know, and, and that's the thing. And I, I think that because Black people are a more, and, and again, there, there, there are words for sociologists about this primary, secondary cultures, but we are more communal people. Um, Latina people, you know, families, they're more yeah. communal people. I think you're absolutely right as far as the spiritual formation and what, in other words, though, too, this is not, we're not having a conversation about what would be better or helpful for the Black community. We're saying Sure. If you were actually a white person in power who could humbly and in a mutually beneficial, loving way enter into a black community and be offer your gifts, that would be beneficial to them. Yep. Guess who would really benefit? Yep. The white community, right? Like, I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a mutual benefit. And that's where again this sense of God as a God of abundance and not of scarcity is so important that this is, you know. This is meant to be good for all, which doesn't mean everyone's going to be driving a Ferrari. Right. Like it doesn't mean material goods are going to just be abundant for all people. Right. And in fact, it may very well mean that some of the white wealth would be redistributed in some ways, right. but it would be better, right? Like right. because of the humanity that would be evoked and the 
sharing and mutuality that would come up through that. Well, yeah, and I think the other part of this, and you've done this with, with your book and, and obviously with your other writing and work, but I think the other thing that people miss is that sometimes what happens when white people get on this journey of um, pursuing justice or anti-racial work or racial reconciliation, you know, this whole thing is they get so disgusted along the way. It's like, well, then now I'm blocking people. Now I can't talk to somebody. It's like, no, no, no. What you need to do now is use what you learn, right? And go back and talk to your people, right? right because right. again, this is where the hard work goes, right? Like you need to have these people, these conversations with your family, with your, with right. your own parents, with your friends, right? With your, do- with your daughters or your son's school, right? Like you need to do that work. And right. I think that's the thing too, that you know, that's the, the cost of the discipleship is like, okay, as you're learning on this journey, then some things that might have been okay to you five years ago, hopefully it's not okay to you now. It should rub you in the wrong way because the Holy Spirit is saying, mm, that's a that's a check in your spirit. Like, that's not right. And then now you'll use your voice to speak up and say, mm, you know, that's not right. And when, you know, when you're doing Bible studies, you're recommending books by people of color because you've already read the books. Like you, you've already right. stu- done the work. You studied the work. When your pastor's up quoting stuff and he's always quoting, the, you know, um, the same people. It's like, hey, pastor, can you, like, right. I just had a friend text me, said, my pastor's going to do a series on the book of Exodus. I told him he need to read your book. They want you to come preach on Sunday. Yeah, I can do that. But he he's not doing that because he knows Natasha or he's read my book. He's doing that on the credibility of the relationship of the white person that he knows. Yeah. Right. And so you're doing that work. David Swanson's doing that work. Daniel Hill's doing that work. So you have white people that are leveraging their relationships and their platforms to come then and educate other white people and point those white people to the people of color that you know and have relationships with. And has that been a blessing to you? Right. Absolutely. And this is where I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And and truly, I mean, again, I wouldn't be recommending your book to my husband if it wasn't yeah. for exactly what you just talked about. And I do want, one of the things I'm so grateful for is that for whatever reason, when I was in high school, I really loved the African-American literature we read in English class. And that led me to go and read more in college and become an African-American studies minor, which meant that I was one of the only white people in classes I took and that I was reading and being taught by people of color in a mentoring capacity from a very young age. And that really, I didn't, until someone asked me as an adult, they said, well, have you ever had a teacher who was a person of color? And I was like, well, yeah, lots. But I didn't, you know, it hadn't been intentional. That's not the norm. And I, re- I realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. If I hadn't kind of fallen down this path, I wouldn't have had that. And how did that shape me in some really positive, really positive, really life-changing ways? And, and it is a gift to be able to offer to other people. So I'm going to finish our conversation because yes. I know we could go on forever. But just by asking if you could tell us where we can find more of you, because I know you are online yeah, yeah. and you have written books mm-hmm. and we'd love to be able to, yeah, know more. So I have a business called T3 Leadership Solutions. T, like the letter T, the number three, Leadership Solutions. So you can go to T3LeadershipSolutions.com. And that's where I do my consulting work, my, okay. my leadership coaching. Some people are looking for diversity. Um, like They're just trying to get smarter about this stuff. So I do coaching on that as well. I'm doing all that stuff virtually now. So you can apply to um, be considered for that on that website. If you're looking for like my ministry stuff with like 
books and all those things. You can go to my ministry website, which, which is natashasrobinson.com. S is in Sistrunk or Sam, depending on that. But you can go there and you can follow all of my social media stuff there. And so you kind of can keep up with social media. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I only send it out once a month and all of that. And then my nonprofit that I do want to share yeah. is Leadership Links Incorporated. Um, Leadership Links, L-I-N-K-S. Inc.org. And so um, we will very much appreciate support of um, that nonprofit. We need regular monthly support, but also anything that people can do. And then we have a volunteer form then there as well as people want to potentially volunteer with the nonprofit. And lastly, I don't know when you're going to publish this, but either way, for the rest of the month of July, uh, beginning this Thursday, we are doing a discussion of Sojourner's Truth, my book. So we'll do the next four thursday evenings we'll do that so actually this thursday um i'm talking to patricia rayburn about part one formation and i'll I'll do a different section each week so some of these people you know so drew hart um is part of the conversation um shane black shares a podcast and then ann snyder our friend she's wrapping up that conversation at the end so it's going to be the next four thursdays and it's free um but people we want them to register you can register on a nonprofit website just on the first page click on the image and register there and we'll send the zoom information for that and then we'll go go live on facebook on a nonprofit page and then also we try to get it up on youtube within a day or two after airing so uh, yeah, we can get you can get the book awesome. and have and join us for that conversation to continue the discussion. Okay, great. Well, we will make sure that all of these links are in the show notes for anyone who wants to learn more. And I hope that lots of people will do that. And meanwhile, I just want to say thank you, thank you. for your wisdom and your honesty and for being just a tremendous leader and woman and we're so grateful that you exist thank you girlfriend i appreciate it every time we get to connect and do stuff together it's fun me too agreed all right amen thank you natasha thank you see you soon thanks again for listening today as always if you've enjoyed this episode please share it with friends review it wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word that love is stronger than fear